0: Okay, so what we're going to be looking at today is we're going to be starting to look at uh, inheritance tax planning in a little bit more detail. And One of the things that's become very important in terms of inheritance tax planning is a loan trust. Now, why do I say it's important? Well, it's important because of the flexibility that it can give to a potential client or investor. And I say flexibility, what do I mean by that? Well, I mean that it often is a potential... Um, solution to maybe enable them to start the inheritance tax planning process when maybe they wouldn't because they've got possibly a what if I need access to the money type of question and at the same time it allows them the opportunity going forward to do different types of inheritance tax planning as they become more comfortable or they decide they don't need access to all that money Or, in fact, even if they do and they want to make use of some other type of plan. And I suppose the downside of loan trusts has always been, well, okay, but the inheritance tax advantages aren't particularly great, are they? It takes an awful long time to get a decent amount of money outside of the estate because it's only the growth, of course, is outside the estate, isn't it? But, of course, in essence, it depends on the amount of the loan. Because if a client is making a loan to a loan trust of, let's say, a million pounds in round figures, and they're getting 5% growth, that's 50,000 pounds after what well, we we'll say net growth after charges, 50,000 pounds outside the estate in year one. And, of course, that's another 50,000 in year two, plus the 5% on that 50. And, of course, that starts to compound upwards. And, of course, over a 10-year period. Then you're looking at around about 600, 650,000 pounds just outside the estate and a product that gives them that flexibility of future planning through that time that loan is still in place. So, today, drop
1: drop in there for a second. Sorry. Um, Yeah, of course. I I like your description. I think loan trusts are often viewed as being kind of like slow burn IHT planning, Mm -hmm. aren't they? Yeah, it's kind of steady as you go. But I'm sure people watching might be saying, is a loan trust the same as a gift and loan trust? Because I've heard that before. Um, can you just kind of just give us a quick um, sort of summary on that?
0: Yeah, I mean, I mean, effectively, the answer is yes. It is exactly the same thing. Uh, it used to be the case where it thought that uh, that it was thought that it needed some kind of um, asset to be placed onto trust to establish that trust before a loan could be made. But it, in 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 more recent times, it's been the case where the promise of a loan being placed effectively onto trust is enough to establish that trust, enough to effectively start to fund that trust to establish it. And so now, of course, I think most 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 loan trusts do no longer have this separate gift element. It used to be for about £10 or something like that, yeah. I think, if I remember correctly. It's but amount, yeah, wasn't it? So just the, yeah, just, just the loan itself and the promise of that loan is enough for that trust to be established effectively. You, so the agenda today... Um, for those who uh, saw the first session, um, we're going to have a quick recap of the changes uh, that happened. Well, going back to the um, budget statement, oh, sorry, the November statement, effectively, and also the budget of the 15th of March this year. Um, and, yeah, you're saying what changes to inheritance tax? Well, we'll see in a minute. We'll then look at the opportunities for inheritance tax planning and where loan trusts start to fit in that potential solution, if you like. And then we'll start going through the, 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 the issues with loan trusts and perhaps the opportunities that arise from them. And we'll start looking at things like what they are. We'll start looking at whether they should be established on a single or a joint settler basis, i.e. a single lender or joint lenders, be it husband and wife, civil partners. Uh, We'll start looking at whether additions and top-ups should be made to an existing trust or perhaps a new trust and what the drawback would be. Um, And then we'll go on to things like the differences between absolute and discretionary uh, loan trusts um, and why it is probably going to be the case in the majority of cases that loan trusts should be established on a discretionary basis. And a hint there could be the extra flexibility that it allows for changing family circumstances. Then we'll start looking at things like deed of waiver. And what I mean there, I mean looking at the loan itself. If the lender decides that he or she no longer needs that loan, because that loan is always inside their estate while it is outstanding, of course. So if they don't need it, then what can be done about it? And that's when deeds of waiver or making outright gifts of that loan come into play. We'll then look at a few planning opportunities with loan trusts and particularly involving things like the periodic charge of subsequent trusts, of course, which can start coming into place on these relevant property trusts, these discretionary loan trusts in year 10 and on any exits that are paid out not to the lender but to the beneficiaries, growth is being paid out. And then we'll look at a couple of case studies. One is a very simple one. Two is a little bit more complex. And of course, it could get an awful lot more complex than what, what you'll see in these two case studies. Why do I say that? Because these things can be very, very flexible. So you can build up a number of different planning routes, perhaps with different trusts, with, different, with, with several discretionary loan trusts maybe with absolute and discretionary loan trusts, And that is without combining them, of course, with things like normal discretionary trusts, discounted gift trusts, and so on. So it's just a hint of what is possible. But the message I want to get across today is a loan trust is an extremely flexible inheritance tax planning vehicle. And the message behind it is it is vitally important for a lot of people because having that ability of recalling the loan might just make them undertake some form of inheritance tax planning now rather than put it off for another year. And so, basically, let's start to look at the inheritance tax changes uh, from, well, 6th of April this year. Uh, And what we are looking at here, of course, is the changes that were announced in the budget. But one thing before we start going through the changes I think is worthwhile pointing out. HMRC reported that some 41,000 estates were liable to pay inheritance tax in the financial year 22-23. That's an awful lot of estates, and that itself was an increase of something like 24% extra estates liable to inheritance tax compared to the previous year. And it is now the highest figure, certainly in the last 20 years. It is also nearly double the amount of estates that basically uh, paid inheritance tax back, um, back in uh, tax year 2018-19. Insofar as the actual inheritance tax take is concerned, then obviously it goes hand in hand. If more estates are paying inheritance tax, there's going to be more inheritance tax paid. And that in tax year 22-23 has now reached a record-breaking $7.1 billion And it's going to get worse. And the reason why it is getting worse is because of these changes, or dare I say, lack of changes that happened in the budget and indeed has happened for a number of years. Because what I'm referring to here in the main is the lack of increase in the nil rate band, not only the normal nil rate band, but also the residence nil rate band and by implication therefore the transferable nil rate band and the transferable residence nil rate band. And to show you the actual impact of that, let's take the the following slide slide on the screen now. And you can see the last time the nil rate band was increased was back in tax year 2009, 2010. And it was increased to a current level of £325,000. Now, if instead of that band being frozen, it had actually increased at only two and a half percent per annum. And think of what property prices have done in that time period so only two and a half percent per annum. Then its value in today's terms would have been 459,000 pounds. And if you work out that difference and multiply that by a 40% inheritance tax liability, then you can see that. Purely because that rate, that band has not been increased, means that somebody dying today, their estate would effectively have been paying or is liable to an extra £53,600 worth of inheritance tax, arguably over and above what it should have been. And that similar argument, of course, works exactly the same with the residence nil rate band. Of course, the last time it's increased was back in tax year 2020 21. But nevertheless, had it been increased up until today's terms, it would have been worth £188,000. And if you actually add those extra taxes due together, then you can see that means an extra £58,800 will be due on an individual's estate purely because those nil rate bonds have been frozen. And of course, if we're looking at spouses, if we're looking at civil partners, then we can multiply that by two, can't we? Because it's each of them. So nil rate band has failed to increase, and so the extra tax that's due purely on this stealth measure alone is some hundred and seventeen thousand pounds. And I mentioned this term stealth, and stealth is is important because we are in the realms of stealth taxes. And for those of you who haven't come across stealth taxes or haven't come across a a good definition, then the definition that I use, it's a tax that is collected in a way that is not very obvious. And really, the people do not realise they are paying the extra tax. And that's exactly what happens with a frozen no red band. It doesn't have the headline rate of being increased or being reduced. It stays where it is. But in realms of higher inflationary times, then the net effect of freezing that nil rate band is to reduce it in real terms. Now, there was a change in the budget to inheritance tax, <clears throat> and the change to, in the budget to inheritance tax was actually to freeze the nil rate band for a further two years, up until and including tax year 2027-28. Excuse me. Now, what that means, of course, is that we can then effectively project that frozen nil rate band and residence nil rate band forward another uh, few years up until tax year twenty seven twenty eight, And in which case, the value of the nil rate band effectively should have been some 506,000 pounds. The value of the residence nil rate band should have been 208,000 pounds meaning an extra, in total, £85,600 would be due from an individual's estate. And of course, if we combine that for partners, whether spouses or civil partners, <coughs> it effectively means an extra uh, inheritance tax liability of 171000 will be paid for estates uh, that become uh, liable to inheritance tax in 27-28. Now, The other interesting point about that, of course, is (coughs) what that means (coughs) with having a frozen nil rate band, it means it becomes very, very important to start planning for inheritance tax sooner rather than later. It becomes vitally important to use any available nil rate band if you can during lifetime. Why? Because if you live for seven years, you'll get another nil rate band and so on. If you can't use it during lifetime, it makes sense to use it on the first death. Why? Because it can be left to another individual or the value can be settled onto a discretionary trust and invested, and in which case growth will be a benefit outside that person's estate. If it's left to the surviving spouse, then effectively what it will do, it will give a maximum uplift of 100% of their nil rate band on their death. And of course, if that nil-rate band is frozen, it effectively means that uplift is frozen as well. Now, here's another interesting point as well. What happens if, at some stage in the future, the nil-rate band is reduced? I'm not saying it will be, but remember, the uplift, the transferable nil-rate band, the transferable resonance nil-rate band, is given as a percentage uplift of the available nil-rate band on that second death. Because if the nil-rate band is frozen or worst case scenario actually goes down or is abolished, it could be lost completely. So plan during lifetime, wherever possible. And if not during lifetime, then perhaps plan if possible on that first step. And so when we come to look at inheritance tax planning and we start looking at the the rationale and what should be done then we can see, we can start looking at nil no rate band as soon as possible, as I said, and that could include outright gifts to individuals. It could include settlements to different types of trust. But the question is, and well, it often rises, well, what happens if I can't afford to give that money? Well, then consider using null rate band on the first step. But what happens if I can afford to give that money But psychologically, I'm not comfortable with making that gift. Well, then, of course, there's different types of solution, which we know are available within the industry. Things like discounted gift trusts, if you want to take a carve out to the withdrawal right for the rest of your life. Things like reversionary interest trusts, if you want some form of access to capital at the trustee's discretion, bear in mind, but limited to the nil rate band, the amount of money is going into that trust. But what happens if you want to start the inheritance tax plan and you want to uh, have the availability of having that original capital coming back to you at your discretion? You're in control. You can recall that loan at any time. And this is the time when loan trusts very, very much come into play. And this is, again, where we go to with this session. So loan trusts, let's start looking at what they are and what they do. First of all, number of options with a loan trust, they're available either on a discretionary or absolute basis. I think the vast majority of loan trusts that we come across now, if I know that vast majority of loan trusts that we get involved with, are written on a discretionary basis. And we'll go through the reasons for that, but basically, there is no settlement value made. So even though the trust will be a relevant property trust, because it is a loan that is being made to the trustees, and at the same time the trustees take possession of that loan, they then have an outstanding debt back to the debtor, so the net assets of that trust is zero. Now what that means, of course, is there is going to be no using of the mill rate band, there is going to be no entry charge for these monies entering that trust and so on that basis it probably makes sense to have as much flexibility as you can have in terms to account for changing family situations whether it be marriages divorces children grandchildren and so on and that is the discretionary trust route in terms of the inheritance tax benefits, what do they offer? Well, all growth is outside of, that, of the lender's estate. It effectively freezes that loan. It's a bit like freezing the nil rate ban that the government has been doing since 2009, 2010. We're playing them at their own game. You are now freezing the loan. It's no longer going up in value for inheritance tax purposes. Fantastic benefit. The trustees invest the, the monies that they've borrowed. And what do they invest in? Well, they can invest in a number of different types of, of, of solutions, but the vast majority will invest in, and we'll see why later, an investment bond. And once it's invested in an investment bond, as you all know, it's subject to the chargeable event regime, which means that on a chargeable event, and that's either on the set law, or should the trustees assign segments or all the to beneficiaries, on the beneficiaries, that is taxed as savings income, and of course, things like top slicing relief is available, as well as segmentation, to enable the beneficiary to minimise the potential tax liability. As so far as the loan itself is concerned, well, that's an asset of the lender. It is in his or her estate. And so care and consideration should be taken as to what to do with that loan. But as time goes on, what we find is lots of clients get into the position of saying, well, that loan trust was great to have at outset because it gave me the comfort of being able to plan for inheritance tax now. But now I am find, you know, five years into the trust, as it were, five years since I set that trust up, I would no longer need that, all that loan. I don't need access to it all. So what I can do is I can write some of that loan off if I want. Alternatively, I can gift that loan to my son, my son and my daughter, whoever I want to. And so effectively, that gives that flexibility. And as far as succession planning is concerned, that third column, that third uh, link there, what it does, it gives the client, the lender, the access to that outstanding loan at any time. And because the trustees can pay that money back, Because the individual can take that money back and plan and gift or whatever he or she wants to do, because the trustees can basically distribute growth at any time to the beneficiaries of that trust, then it's actually a great solution for complex families. And being a discretionary trust means it can change with the times or change as the family situations change as well. And finally, a couple of things. Trust solutions, well, trust solutions are tried and tested, as you well know. Loan trusts have been around since, well, Richard mentioned at the start, gift and loan trusts. I mean, that's a few years ago, Richard. So, um, yeah, a long time is is the figure there. And, of course, the other thing with the loan trust, being a a trust itself, that it's great for things like avoiding probate. Probate does not have to be proven for the assets to be released to those beneficiaries. And so how does it actually work in practice? Well, it's very, very simple, as as I'm sure we all know and realize. And and basically what happens is the lender or the settler, because they're interchangeable, they're the same people in this particular instance, makes a loan that is interest-free and that is repayable on his or her demand. And that loan is made to the trustees. And this example, we've got a £500,000 loan. The trustees then invest that money in a tax efficient manner and that invariably will be into an investment bond, usually an offshore bond, usually a capital redemption bond, but it can be a life assurance bond if they wish. And then obviously they benefit from the gross roll-up that is achieved within that investment product. Of course, that bond can be linked to a number of different linked assets, and, of course, external managers can be appointed, if necessary, to to manage the underlying linked assets on the trustees' behalf. Because trustees, they are trying to generate growth, because that growth is going to be outside of the lenders, the settlers, estate. And what they can do is they can invest that in that tax-efficient environment and hopefully generate quite a lot of growth. But... Should the lender say, well, can I have access to say 5% of my original loan? Remember that loan was repayable on demand. The trustees would of course have to pay that money back. And if they do so, then the good thing about an investment bond is any holder can take the 5% tax deferred allowance facility. And the same with the trustees take that 5%, then use that as loan repayment back to the set law. And in that basis, completely tax deferred at that point in time it should be reiterated that that loan or the outstanding loan because it's gradually repaid it's gradually going down in value is could still form part of the settler's estate and it should of course still be factored in to the any other inheritance tax plan but that loan can be changed at any time it can be waived it can be written off it can be gifted It can be partially waived or partially gifted at any time. So, simple example in terms of a a picture as it were, the loan trust in action. Here we have on the left-hand side, the settlor who is making a loan to the trustees of a discretionary loan trust. The loan is obviously, as we said, repayable on demand. So if the settlor at day two wants a repayment of that loan, the trustees must repay it back to him or her. So it solves that what-if question. It may enable them to start that inheritance tax plan when otherwise they would not have done so. Of course, now the trustees are holders of this lump of money. Of course, they've still got the debt, but they've now got some assets as well. And of course, they invest those assets in that investment bond. The beneficiaries of that discretionary trust can be wide ranging. It can even include the set law's spouse. It can even include, and more likely to include, any widow or widower of the set law, which means that should the trustees decide it's the right course of action, they can actually appoint benefits, growth effectively, out to that set spouse. Or perhaps more likely once the settlers died, to widow or widower, if they think it's right. So very, very flexible type of planning is in play. And of course, as family situations change, then those beneficiaries can be changed accordingly. So questions that immediately start to crop up with loan trusts is, should they be established on a single settler or a joint settler basis? And to actually, I suppose, examine this in more detail, then, well, actually, I'll go stay further. I think that these things, wherever possible, should always be established on a sole settler basis. And the reason for this is purely one of extra flexibility. The flexibility, effectively, of appointing the settler's spouse as a potential beneficiary. Now, That can be done. Issues that resolve or or may be a problem there is if we have two settlers. And let's say it's husband, let's say it's wife. Now, if the spouse is appointed as beneficiary of both trusts, then we could fall foul of things like the associated and reciprocal operations legislation so therefore it's important not to have the spouse as a beneficiary of both trusts in that particular example but you could for instance have the wife as a beneficiary of the husband's settled trust and the widower that's right around a widow widow isn't it of a beneficiary of the wife's settled trust and that should be okay now the other issue just to be careful of here is that if we do have the spouse as a beneficiary, and the set law is still alive and is taking benefits in terms of you know repayment of that loan. Then we've already said that the trustees have at their discretionary powers the ability of appointing some of the growth to those discretionary beneficiaries, including spouse. And of course, if they do that, that is fine, providing that the spouse does not then give that money directly or back to or provide for the settler, because then that would be, again be a gift with reservation of benefit. But the theory is it can be done. Now, of course, the other way of establishing a loan trust where we have the opportunities for two single settler trusts, so in civil partners, in terms of spouses, is to establish on a joint settler basis. And I think, you know, we come across uh, loan trusts where this has been done. And I actually struggle to really convince myself as to why this is a, a good planning point. Because the problem with establishing the joint settler trust is that when the first settler dies, then the trust will continue. And remember that neither settler can be a beneficiary of that trust. So all that will continue is that right to take the repayment of the loan. There is no right to take any growth from that trust. And again, that is restricting what can happen in future. It is also an issue that being a settler, even when the first settler has died, that should the spouse waive that loan again, She cannot be a beneficiary. So lots of issues are coming into play. The main one is that flexibility. Other questions. Can additional loans and top-ups, additional investments, if you like, be made? And of course they can. And there's two ways of doing this. Either one, the set law, let's assume it's a single set law trust, can establish a completely new loan trust. And if he or she does that, then there would be another loan agreement in place, there will be another trust, and there'll be another trust investment. Is that the right thing to do? It may be, and we'll see why that can be of benefit as so we go through the slides. But strictly speaking, you should always look at both sides of the arguments here, because if you are topping up an existing trust with an additional loan, and the same trust is then investing in monies, the additional loan uh, monies it's borrowed as an additional premium into that single premium investment bond. Then on the ultimate encashment of that bond, once it's been assigned to beneficiaries, then of course the top slicing element, the n, the divisor factor as far as the top slicing is concerned, will still go right back to when that original bond was taken out, was invested in. And that can give distinct advantages for things like top sizing relief. But we have to combine that and compare it with things like the effects on periodic charges, as we'll see later. One final point on that slide. Can a loan trust be set up with the set law as the sole trustee? And the answer to that is, I'm afraid it can't. And the reason why is because a person cannot legally make a loan to themselves. It cannot legally contract with themselves. So there always has to be at least two trustees. I mean, that's good practice in any case, but it always has to be two trustees if the settlor is one of those trustees. And so we come, come to the comparison of the differences between having an absolute loan trust and a discretionary trust. And we'll go through these on a well fairly quickly, I suppose. So let's just look at the creation. Well, we said already there's no transfer of values on monies being lent to the trustees. So both the same there. The differences in terms of who the beneficiaries are can, of course, be considerable because with an absolute loan trust, once those beneficiaries have been selected, they cannot be changed. Whereas, of course, a discretionary loan trust. A wide class of beneficiaries, and the trustees can kind appoint of to different members of these different classes. And of course, what that means, as I said earlier, it can accommodate changing family circumstances. In terms of the growth, well, a discretionary trust, immediate advantage, and that all growth is outside of not only the set laws of state, but outside the beneficiaries estate state as well. The beneficiaries do not have any assets themselves until it is actually appointed to them by the trustees. Compare that with the absolute version when, of course, beneficiaries are fixed and their share of the growth is part of their estate. And of course, that is from day one, whether it has been distributed or not. The outstanding loan in both cases is part of the settler's estate. In terms of the ongoing tax liability, then, of course, the discretionary loan trust is a relevant property trust. And in which case we have to look at things like periodic charges and exit charges. But of course, there's ways of minimizing that. Again, we'll come to that to go through the slides. In terms of the underlying wrapper, if it's the investment bond, obviously an offshore investment bond will grow tax. practically tax free uh, in most circumstances. In terms of distribution, of course, then you have potentially segment surrenders, you've got 5% withdrawal facilities and so on. In terms of the wind-up and final distribution, well, with an absolute trust, it's taxed on the beneficiaries. It's theirs as of right. In terms of the discretionary loan trust, well, it's a choice there because, of course, the trustees could encash the policy themselves, in which case it's taxed on the set law if he's still alive, or if the set law has died and the trustees are making the distribution, then it is be taxed back onto the beneficiaries as savings income. And so it's possible to develop lots of different tax planning techniques through these trusts. Now, I suppose one of the big differences of these two is people say, well, yeah, I like the absolute variant. Why? Because if I have a loan to the trustees or make a loan to the trustees and I decide to waive it because I don't need it anymore, well, it's nice and simple to potentially accept transfer. If I do that with a discretionary trust, because it's effectively an additional settlement, it is a chargeable lifetime transfer and it could be entry charges and so on. It's more complex. And of course, that's true. But you do not have to write the loan off with a discretionary trust. What you could do is gift the loan to somebody. So I could gift my outstanding loan I've made to my discretionary loan trust. I could gift it to Richard. That then would trigger a potentially exempt transfer. So you can effectively have some of the same tax planning facilities, but with the added extra flexibility. And that's why I would always tend to go down that discretionary trust variant. Quick word as to why investment bonds are the solution, the investment solution, basically because they're non-income producing. Now, it is perfectly feasible for the loan trust to invest in things like well, direct equities, for instance, or, uh, or or GIAs or whatever. Things that produce income, whether it's interest or dividend. But the problem that arises where the trustees are in, in receipt of income, if they are paying out a repayment of the loan to the set law, the lender, and part of that payment has come from income that they've received, then that is enough to turn that trust into a set law, interested trust for income tax purposes. The bond solves that potential issue. So let's start looking at the outstanding loan question in a little bit more detail. And what we'll do here, we'll look at what happens to the outstanding loans at the death of the set law both on a single and a joint settler basis. And then we'll start looking at the outstanding loans and the opportunities or planning opportunities, I suppose, of what to do with that loan during the settler's lifetime if he or she decides they no longer need it. And so where the single settler trusts are used, first of all, what happens to the loan at the death of the settler? Well, it depends on the content of the will. And the normal situation that should apply here is that loan should actually be named as an asset in the will and it really should be determined as to who or whom of multiple variants, I suppose, that can benefit from that loan on the death of the set law. That stops that loan falling into residuary and basically stops the personal reps having to recall that loan, potentially trigger a chargeable event for the trustees that are cashing the bonds to repay it and all types of associated problems at the death of the set law. Now, one of the other things that can be done instead of that is if the set law had wished, it doesn't have to have Decided who benefits in terms of uh, individual from that loan or outstanding loan at his death. Of course, what he could do, he could have instructed the personal reps, via his will, to write off that loan. And effectively then just increase the size of that, what is now a discretionary trust. Therefore, no loans outstanding and future growth will be that much higher. Where joint settler trusts are used, it's not quite as many options. Because on the first death, the outstanding loan automatically passes to that other settler, whether it's a spouse or civil partner. And so no opportunities there other than you know just benefiting from that loan effectively for further tax planning. Now, of course, if that loan does pass to another individual and he or she decides, well, I don't really need it or perhaps it's not the most tax efficient thing to do, then of course, all the options are available to that individual, because that loan is just an asset in his or her estate. So I assume I've died, I've left left my loan to my son, he no longer needs it, and he wants to pass it to his niece. Well, he can do that via a deed of variation, just like any other asset. Or indeed, it could be passed back into the estate, into the residuary of the estate, purely by using a disclaimer. So all these things are available just as if it was any other asset. Now, it's the situation on death. What's the situation during lifetime? So here I am. I'm the settler of this trust. I've lent monies to them. I've lent them a million pounds. Trust is doing very well. It's generating growth. I'm happy it's outside the estate. And I'm saying, right, well, that million pounds, I don't need it anymore. Or I don't need half a million. Anymore. I know for certain I don't need it. So what can I do? Well, I can gift that loan to another individual during my lifetime. So I'll create a pet and transfer it to Richard. Or I can settle that loan onto a separate discretionary trust if I want to maybe to utilize my nil rate plan. Well, that's the right thing to do or not. I don't know, but I could do that if I wanted I could even demand that loan is repaid and I can make alternative arrangements. So I could say, right, repay me 325,000 pounds and I'll set that onto a discretionary trust, use my nil rate plan or whatever. Or what I can do is completely waive that loan. Now, if I waive that loan, then it has to be done with a deed of waiver. And basically what I'm effectively doing is I'm releasing the trustees from their obligation to repay that loan in my lifetime if I do that it has to be done via a separate deed or via a deed and effectively any utmost loan trust of course we can provide those deeds in order for that waiver to take place now when would I waive that loan ordinary well I could waive that loan for a number of situations I could just want uh decide I don't need it but I could also start to utilize things like like the annual exemption, £3,000 a year, for instance. And I could write that £3,000 a year off every year that I'm not utilising it. It's a nice little way of actually using that 3000 exemption without physically paying money out, I suppose, just writing off that loan. And, of course, don't forget that £6,000 in year one if I haven't utilised the annual exemption from last year. Of course, differences between the two, well, the differences are, because it's absolute loan trust, so that waiver would be a potentially exempt transfer. If it's a discretionary loan trust, that waiver would be a chargeable lifetime transfer. But the way around that is if the chargeable lifetime transfer is an issue, you don't have the full nil rate band, or you, you know, you, you, you're careful of creating what is a chargeable lifetime transfer or actual tax to pay over and above that nil rate band simply gift that loan as an outright asset. Now, one thing to be careful about here in terms of waiver. If the loan trust has been established on a single settler basis and the settler has died and effectively the loan has passed to the surviving spouse under the terms of the will and he or she is a beneficiary of that trust, that is not a gift with reservation. It's absolutely fine, even though they can actually benefit from the repayment of the loan and benefit from the growth, it is not a gift with reservation. Where the potential problems might arise, however, is being the owner of that loan. If that surviving spouse then waives that loan, effectively that's an additional settlement. And he or she then would be set law and also the beneficiary of that trust. Which means, of course, that would be a gift reservation provision. And so, under those circumstances, it's important that the surviving spouse does not write that loan off. It should instead, if he or she doesn't need it, be gifted to third to another party. Okay. So, look at, going now to look at the planning opportunities. So, effectively, what are the planning opportunities going forward? Well, the good thing with loan trusts is effectively the loan at the start is effectively never settled property. Why? Because there's a loan being made and at the same time the trustees receive that money, but they've got this liability to pay out. So the net settlement value is zero. And of course, that means that loan trusts are great for clients who don't have a nil rate band. They've used it already, perhaps. Clients who don't want to use their nil rate band, maybe because they foresee other types of planning in the future. Clients who want to make or want to generate growth on larger amounts effectively, they would be way above the nil rate band. So lots of different types of arrangements can benefit. And of course, in terms of looking at things like periodic charges at a later date, where each trust has its own nil rate band, then we can start looking at multiple trusts to evoke the so-called RISAF type planning, which we'll see in a different in a few sides of time. So let's just start looking at that and let's take a simple example. And here we have an assumption, a 300,000 pounds loan trust is being settled by the individual. Within the previous seven years of making that settlement onto the loan trust, the same individual had already triggered Three hundred thousand pounds worth of chargeable lifetime transfers. We assume, for the sake of argument, that we've got nice round figures here. Five percent growth over ten years. We assume that the um, uh, that the withdrawals taken are taken again at that five percent per annum basis annually in area. And so, effectively, a five percent growth is made. It's paid out. So net result is there's no growth in that trust. But what there is, of course, is a repayment of that loan at 5% per annum. So £150,000 has been repaid over that 10-year period. So when we start looking to calculate the periodic charge in year 10 and assuming the new rate band has increased slightly at 2.5% from tax year 27-28, Big assumption, I know, going back to history, but let's just assume it and assume <clears throat> that new rate band is now £368,000. Then we can actually work out what the periodic charge is. And in this example, it's £4,920. So question is, can we plan to mitigate or should we say avoid or not have that £4,920 liability arise? And of course we can. And we can do this through using this multiple trust, invert commas, RiceAft route. And effectively, well, how it all works, it works to mitigate that periodic charge. And the way it works is it interjects into that template, if you like, the trust. Every trust has its own nil rate band. Now, the thing about the nil rate band is the available nil rate band for calculating the periodic charges is reduced by two things any distributions, well, there isn't any here, so that's good, but it's also reduced by previous or lifetime transfers in the seven years prior to that trust being established. Now, in this particular instance, there was one, wasn't it, £300,000 within the last seven years. But the interesting point is one loan trust being established after the next loan trust, after the next loan trust, the loan trust have no influence at all on reducing that available new rate bank because there's been no settlement value. So it's just that original 300,000 that reduced the nil rate band. And so, if we start putting that into the equation, then we can see we assume exactly the same net trust assets now spread over three trusts of 50,000 pounds each, not 150 as before. The nil rate band is still that 368,000 less that 300,000 chargeable transfer that was made seven years prior to the establishment of any of these trusts. An effective liability, therefore, for a periodic charge is zero. Now that's the saving of four, nine, 20 pounds purely by using three trusts compared to one. Now in practice, it's not quite as simple as that. And the reason why it's not quite as simple as that is because we have to factor in things like charges and particularly things like policy charges, policy fees and so on. And so what happens then if we start to do this, well, we get crossover points, don't we, where it might be better to have three trusts compared to one loan trust, but not 10 trusts because those extra policy fees would eat into the rate charge savings. And So what do we do there? Well, we can look at the calculator. And this is a calculator that's available via any of the utmost regional sales managers, not the calculator itself, but the figures and the printouts are. Because what we do here is we input the actual illustrative value that comes from the illustrations, And of course, what the beauty of that is, it reflects all the actuarial charges, including policy fees. And so by way of a simple example here, you can see a loan trust established, one loan trust established the three million pounds at the top. And we're projecting it forward. So we take the figures directly from the illustration at five and eight percent. and we see what the projected values are on the left-hand side. And then what we're doing in this example, we're comparing it with three loan trusts. And again, get the illustration and input those figures. And you can see what those figures are. And we'll calculate what those 10-year charges are down that right-hand side of the equation. Now, the net result on this particular example is in the summary box. And you can see by using three trusts compared to one loan trust, there's a saving in the periodic charge of something near £46,000. That's after all projected charges. So it's something that's worth doing. Now, it might have been even better, because had we got the figures for, say, I don't know, um, six six bonds at half a million each, it might have been a bigger saving. But it's just to show what is feasible with multiple trust planning. And so, by way of, I suppose, starting to wind up now, we'll start looking at these things in practice and look at a simple case study and then just introduce a little bit more complexity going forward. So the simple case study is one of Mary. And Mary, as you can see, she's 65 year old. She's she's widowed. Um, she has an estate of something akin to one point eight five million pounds. Um, and she's comfortably meeting her expenditure uh, through her pension income. So she's got no need of that, uh, of that capital, effectively. But she's rather concerned about what might happen to her in the future, because unfortunately, Mary's had experience uh, with her mother being ill and her mother needed to be looked after by care homes. And so Mary wants to be in that position of knowing that if she has to go into a care home at some stage, she's going to go into the one that she wants to go in. And she's going to want the capital to fund it. And well, that's right. You know, that's up to her. That is up to her decision. And so bearing that in mind, what she decides to do is she decides to invest in a loan trust because she knows that investing in that loan trust is going to freeze that capital content, effectively, capital value in terms of inheritance tax liability is concerned. She also knows that any growth is going to be generated outside of her estate, so it's going to be helpful in terms of the inheritance tax planning going forward. But she also knows that when she does need access to the capital, or shall I say, if she needs access to the capital, then it's there if necessary. And that could help her for whatever purpose that she she wants. In this particular instance, it could be for those care home fees. And so, basically, the advantage is full access to the capital, She has control who's benefits because she's acting as one of those trustees. Growth is outside of her estate. And because effectively it's freezing or helped to freeze that value, that bit of her estate, effectively, it may even protect against things like residence no rate ban, taper relief or tapering effects as you go forward. And of course, if she does want to or decides to accelerate the inheritance tax advantages, then she could gift the loan, waive the loan, et cetera, et cetera as she desires going forward. So a simple little case study to show the example. But what we can do with these case studies, we can build in a level of complexity and we can make these things as complex as as, as, as we want to really, because they are so flexible going forward. They say the loan trust may not give the immediate inheritance tax benefits of a discounted gift trust, but certainly in flexibility, it's in a completely different league altogether. And here we have John, John Single is age 62, semi-retired business consultant, two failed marriages, five children from both of those marriages. He has an assumed house worth one and a half million, apartment 350, savings and investments 2 million, very good private pension, no immediate need of capital. And effectively, he undertakes inheritance tax planning. And as part of that plan, he decides with his advisor to invest or make a loan to discretionary loan uh, to a discretionary loan trust, and we'll say it's a million pounds. And that figure is just effectively being plucked out of thin air. It's half of that two million pounds worth of capital. And basically, we can now start to develop what can happen with that money's going forward. So we know at day one, John's asset is that million pounds loan, but the trustees are investing to get all the growth outside the estate. All the Apaches we've seen. End of year one. He has a meeting with his advisor, and it's suddenly seen that they hadn't used their annual exemption. It had been overlooked. And, of course, the annual exemption for this year, last year's is unused. And basically, what they decided to use that and write off £6,000 of that loan. And effectively, what that now means is the settler outstanding loan is now £994,000. And then coincidentally, it doesn't have to be, but we assume it is, seven years later, John decides to, well, make another form of inheritance tax plan, another form of, um, of um, uh, supplement, in fact, like, to his inheritance tax plan. And what he decides to do at that point in time, he hadn't used his nil rate band, so he could have done it, you know, at year five, but it's just seven years he decides to do it. He decides to, well, write another £325,000, the available nil rate band at that time. As a waiver of the loan, to write it off as wavering, wavering a part of that loan. Now the outstanding loan is some £669,000. And then in year 10, John decides, well, wait a minute, I think I might go on a cruise of whatever he decides to do. Uh, would the trustees start repaying some of that outstanding loan, some of that £669,000 back to me uh, as a regular withdrawal? And so he starts to demand that from the trustees. And of course, they pay it. The outstanding loans reduced even further. And the inheritance tax benefits continue. But what about RISO? Because here we have just used one discretionary trust. Of course, in theory, we could use several. On a million pound loan, it might be better to write us two discretionary loan trusts. And in which case, we could have maybe discretionary loan trust one, where part of the loan is Repaid, perhaps, or maybe it's not, maybe it's actually gifted to trigger that potentially exempt transfer. Then loan trust two, where again beneficiaries can be changed as the trustees decide and you know think fit. The loans can be written off if necessary. And again, any outstanding loan trigger a potentially exempt transfer. Or it can demand repayment. But again, using two trusts means a potential saving, perhaps on that periodic charge. And this is the thing about the loan trust route. You can build in an awful lot of flexibility. And when you start actually delving down into it, it's really interesting as to how many circumstances they could be applicable for, because it enables clients to start planning sooner rather than later. And so a quick recap, and then I promise that's me finished. Settler's rights are limited to repayment of the loan, so the growth is not inside his or her estate. Low repayment is capital, so no income or capital gains tax liability in the settler's hands for the repayment of that loan. Establishment of the trust has no immediate inheritance tax implications because it's loaned monies, but a debt of the trustees are concerned. Gift reservation of benefit rules not apply because the settler is not a benefit of the trust. He's just purely lending money. It's been repaid on demand. Previously owned asset tax does not apply because it's, it's, it's money that's never actually physically settled. Discretionary trust, I put to you, gives the maximum flexibility. And again, it counts and helps to solve um, um, fluid, if you like, families' problems. And loan trust repayments do not give rise to an exit charge. So the steps required. And of course, it's important to establish these things in the right order. And so at outset, effectively, the trust has to be established at day one with the promise of that loan. And then day two, effectively, the loan has to be made to the trustees. And on day three, then the trustees can make the investment in the investment bond. And then what happens after that? Well, you've already seen there's enough options uh, for, for, for the trustees, the advisors to have regular consultations. And so finally, when it comes to inheritance tax planning, as I said before, the discounted gift trust is perhaps the most inheritance tax efficient because carving out the right to income can give a large discount for inheritance tax purposes. So if anything happens in that seven-year period, then sell it. But from an inheritance tax perspective, it means you've benefited or the estate has benefited greatly. The loan trust is not quite as benef- it's not quite as inheritance tax efficient, but nevertheless. Large sums of growth is is obviously outside of the settler's and or lender's estate. But what the loan trust does, it gives an immeasurable extra flexibility over and above the discounted gift trust. And it really does have an important part to play in inheritance tax
1: planning. And I think, Richard, over to you. Wow. That was definitely a deep dive. Um, There's there's so much that I've forgotten about Loan Trust that you've reminded me of there and stuff I didn't even know um, I've learned there. So that was absolutely brilliant. Um, Thank you so much, Steve. Um, And if you want to hear more about IHT planning, don't forget we've got the Discounted Gift Trust uh, session. We'll pop a link to that uh, in the description of this video so you can tune in and watch that as well just to Complete the circle, if you like, about IHT planning. Um, And don't forget, if you have any questions, um, I've got plenty after that, um, you can pop them on the Big Tent um, and Steve will drop in there and answer those for you. So from us, uh, thank you very much to most for supporting the Paraprends Assembly. Thank you once again to Steve for sharing your infinite wisdom and knowledge. uh, And that's it from us. Goodbye. Thank you. Bye.